There is a narrative that you're supposed to be following and that you can understand, but also the visual elements of the film and the way that Kubrick uses or doesn't use sound and the other senses adds this extra dimension of interpretation that allows an audience to walk away knowing something about the objective narrative, if you will, but also having a lot of different subjective feelings and reactions to what it means. are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... I'm Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University, and my favorite movie director is Christopher Nolan. I am Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and since Kendra took Christopher Nolan, I'm going to say Christopher Guest. Ian Benz, associate professor of elementary science education at UNC Charlotte. And I'd say my favorite is Steven Spielberg. Adam Pryor. Uh, I teach at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. If I'm going to choose a favorite movie director, I'm going to go old school and do Orson Welles. Rachel Jackson, Rabbi at Agudas Israel Congregation, Hendersonville, North Carolina. New director, whose name I'm going to totally butcher, so I apologize. It's one of those Reddit never said it. Uh, Taika Watiti. Oh, yes. Who is the director of uh, Jojo Rabbit, among many, many others. Um, In the Thor movies, doesn't he play that rock monster thing? Yes. And he also directed one of the the movies. Yeah. Ragnarok. Yeah. Which was outstanding. It really was. That's great. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) thanks, everyone. Take us away, Ken Brillionaire. (laughs) so just just by a show of hands or by a show of yes (laughs) uh, who loves 2001 a space odyssey i hope you all love it because that's what we're talking about today can i give a a half a hand oh come on my my son goes like rather than thumbs up thumbs down he goes like thumbs in the middle okay like yeah i love the idea of 2001 a space odyssey i think i would love the made for tv version better but i'm I'm, i'll try not to ruin this go ahead i've tried to watch it three times and i've fallen asleep every time y'all are the worst so i have i I, i'm not i've I, i hate to admit that i've watched it once to be honest, I I am not the biggest fan of Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick right? of of really his films. Just, I just oh am man, not. I wish that this today. was a YouTube podcast so people could see <laughs> Kendra's face. <laughs> the disappointment in all of us is strong. Oh, disappointed, man. Okay, well, sorry. I guess I'm we have let a lot Kendra of pressure down. all of a sudden to like. Make <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> It's, uh, it's totally up to you to save this movie. <laughs> Make me love this movie, Kendra. Make okay. us be in your cult. Yeah, no kidding. Let's see. Let's see what I can do. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I guess just I'm not going to do a, a summary of the film, but just as like a little bit of background information for people that might not have cared to look this information up. Uh, it is directed by Stanley Kubrick. And like I have not really watched many other things by Stanley Kubrick, but I first watched 2001 A Space Odyssey for, I think I mentioned this class, uh, the last episode, but when I was a master's student, I took a class on faith and film, and we had to write a couple of papers on movies of our choices, and I just got in this like sci-fi streak, like all of the things I wrote in that class were sci-fi themed, and so my two papers were 2001 A Space Odyssey and Interstellar. But that was the first time that I had ever watched 2001 A Space Odyssey. I'm not going to keep calling it that. I'm just going to say 2001 from now on. <laughs> but Easier. Yeah. But I watched it and had a lot of mixed emotions. So maybe this is validating to all of your pessimism mm-hmm. that will hopefully be changed in the next 30 minutes. <laughs> but it's weird. You know, it's just. Like it opens, there's like hardly any talking in the film. It's like two and a half hours almost. And I think there's like over an hour of silence in the movie. 
And so, you know, I just, I also had not read the novel. So if you don't already know, it's not true that the Sentinel, which is the novel that accompanies 2001, it was not written first. He, uh, Kubrick actually worked with the author of the novel, Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote the Sentinel. They worked together to create like the film and the novel alongside each other. And uh, like the novel, I guess, I, I think if I'm remembering correctly, it came out like a little bit before the film, but they were working together. And But the novel and the film look really uh, differently. I've not read the novel, but from what I understand, there are uh, passages in the novel that like don't make it into the film and vice versa. Rachel, I thought it, were you shaking your head I, or what? Um, so I just... I just looked it up. Um, the movie came out, 2001 A Space Odyssey, came out in 1968. And according to not just Wikipedia, but actual places, the, the short story was written in 1948 and then was published in 1951. So almost 20 years prior to the film coming out. I wonder... Oh. I wonder what that means then, because everything I've seen has showed that they work together. And there's like interview footage of them talking about. And, and maybe that's possible. Yeah, maybe that's possible. But maybe one was written well before the other one then. Right. Yeah. A version of it or something. Maybe. I mean, but um, Kubrick was born in 28. So he could have been right. He, if he was 20 years old talking to Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah. Right. I don't know. But it's it's not an impossibility. Yeah. It's not impossibility. Timeline but. aside. Because yes. yeah, I I didn't know that it was like that far in advance. I knew that the novel was like technically published before the film came out, but uh they did work together and it's like you can obviously read or watch two thousand one without like going to the other source of uh medium. But I think that it's more interesting to understand both sets of the story uh, together. And I think after mm -hmm. watch, like I said, I've not read The Sentinel, but I really want to read it after uh, doing more research on the film because I did not understand a lot of 2001 until I started like looking up all the weird fandom corners of the internet and then started seeing <laughs> people like bring information from the Sentinel into interpretations of what was happening in the film. And then I was like, what? That's so cool. But I think one of the things that what that people like hated about the movie was that it was long and there's not a lot of talking and it's just confusing. But I think that's like one of the things that's cool about it because Kubrick in different interviews expresses that he was trying to create a film that elicited an emotional and like subjective response and so he was also like hesitant in a lot of interviews to like give an explanation of the ending which you know the ending is the last segment of the film with the stargate and the star child and it's real wacky <laughs> but he he created this visual experience that has all of the symbolic imagery and you are observing Dave Bowman go through the Stargate and basically watch his own life pass alone in this like zoo-like room and see the last monolith before he turns into the star child. And it, you get to the end and you're like, what is going on? But I think that Kubrick, <laughs> he, yeah. he wanted that to mean a lot of different things to people. And so People have really run with it. And it's just really interesting because you can analyze the monolith to mean a lot of different things. And I'm gonna I'm gonna start getting real rambly here. So I don't know, like I could talk for a long time about this, but maybe I should just like stop and ask a question. Um but <laughs> basically I just wanted to give a little background on Kubrick though. He wanted to create something that was of mythic proportions when he made this film. And it has been incredibly influential on the sci-fi genre and has influenced um, Star Wars and Star Trek and um, Interstellar, which we're going to talk about in a couple weeks. Yes. So despite how boring it might have seemed to many people, it has been a very influential film for a number of reasons. And it was one of the first 
or maybe like the first sci-fi movies to really try and get the science right. And so he, Kubrick paid a lot of attention to like how the science could be more realistic in the film, uh, which is also something that we see as being really influential in uh, later movies, such as Interstellar, which does the same thing. So. So I'll give it that. I I, I understand <laughs> that I am. I find it a little boring and a little hard to follow sometimes. Just, just and a, a little, little a little predictable. But I understand that I'm coming at it from having seen so many movies that were directly influenced by it and that borrowed pieces mm -hmm. from it that it makes me feel that way. And so I understand that when like like when modern people read. The Odyssey, not the space Odyssey, but Homer's Odyssey. <laughs> a lot of people have a hard time getting through it because they're like, uh -huh. oh, well, I know what's going to happen. Oh, this is boring. This is so predictable. And it's like it's predictable because everyone else has copied it yeah. for several thousand years. And so it's not derivative. Everything is derived from it. And so I, I have to take myself out of my own critic's mind here and and say that all right probably a lot of the issues i have with the movie are because it was the first and so i love the way the interstellar ends but it ends in a very similar way to 2001 and they did it first <laughs> right it was very novel back then but none of us none of us like i said the movie came out in 1968 none of us we're around at that point to watch the movie first. And if you are living in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, when you're first starting to watch sci-fi movies, that's not the very first one that you watch. Or like um, at, the, at the end of the first time you watched The Sixth Sense and it was like uh, Shyamalan's first movie and you're like, wait a second, Bruce Willis is dead the whole time? What? <laughs> this is a spoiler, spoiler alert. Oh, come on. <laughs> when did that movie come out? Okay. Just give it up, man. <laughs> that they, um, n now that's just such a common trope. And it, it's right. so, so common that Shyamalan was originally. Um, 1999, by the way. Was going to, oh, thank you. He was originally going to uh, direct The Life of Pi, but mm. took himself out of the project because he didn't want people to go into it thinking that, oh, there's a twist <laughs> ending because there is a twist ending to that book. And right. he didn't want people to already predict that it was going to happen and ruin the ending to the book. And so he took himself off of it. Um, <laughs> that's funny. He also wrote Stuart Little, but that's a whole different episode <laughs> that mm. we can get into. So yeah, I, I guess, are there any other things, or Adam, you were going to... No, I, I mean, I... I... I think the silence is like the sort of big piece, right? Of of two thousand one, the Space yeah. Odyssey, right? To my to my mind, like if there's one thing that characterizes the movie, it's the silence, which in my case continually mm -hmm. put me to sleep. But I also understand why it is like important. But I I guess I'm curious, like also, it, I'm just curious how others sort of respond to it. I think the idea is that we're supposed to receive something sort of like visceral through the silence like it's supposed to communicate something to the person who's watching it that normally you would communicate through narrative and instead like space almost becomes a character in the movie mm. right <laughs> as this like silent force that in one sense speaks more than any other and the silence like makes hal feel more humanoid everybody else seems like cold and unfeeling compared to hal but you only have that effect if you have sort of the silence going on right mm -hmm. all of which i like intellectually understand <laughs> and when i watch it i don't have those feelings which i think is interesting hmm. what i don't know what to do, do with that instead? it makes me feel deeply uncultured but <laughs> you are well that's true <laughs> i think I, but i feel like but, but i feel like when you were talking rachel about like 80s 90s sci-fi Right. Like it's driven by narrative. Exactly. Whole stop. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is something of a completely different feather. Mm -hmm. I yeah. mean, even so I was thinking about this, the time in which it was filmed, since we're talking about the film and not Arthur C. Clarke's either either his screenplay or the Sentinel Sentinel of Eternity, not the books, but really 
Kubrick's version of, of the movie, right? That came out in 68. And Kendra, you alluded to Star Trek, the original series, which came out in September of 66. Um, and so even people who really love Star Trek watch the original Star Trek and go, whoa, that is really bad. So we have. It wasn't we, originally very popular, right? It was not. That's why it only lasted a few seasons. Yeah. But then it became a cult following and now it's become pop culture. Right. So I think so both both the genre itself was challenging when it came out and then the way it was filmed is challenging even to this day and and again none of us were around in the 60s to appreciate this silence is extremely hard so i'm thinking of another more recent movie castaway with tom hanks and <laughs> oh my gosh, it's yeah. him and a volleyball And I don't remember what the ratio was of how much dialogue versus how much silence there was, but it was a significant amount. And that made people extremely uncomfortable. So I think I, I really like what Adam was saying that when we think about space, that silence is part of it. And we're not, we're not used to that. Hmm. And I think it was really important, but I think, I, that is also one of the reasons that I went, oh, I don't I don't know how I feel about this film mm-hmm. um, because we're I mean, there's even uh, um, for the folks listening, we always talk before we actually start recording. Um, so one of the things that we were talking about before we started recording was um, particular musicians. And one comes to mind in this moment, Alanis Morissette. Yes. And in one of her songs, she's like she says, um, uh, Why are you she, so uncomfortable with silence? Yeah, exactly. Like she's this? like, can you handle this? And then like it goes silence for maybe two seconds, maybe Feels maybe a, a second and a half. Right, <laughs> but she names it, and that was in the nineties, right? She names it, and so I think maybe that Kendra, you're sensing our discomfort there, because space in and of itself is really uncomfortable with that deafening silence. Well, you think about with space, right? I mean, a lot of the criticisms of space movies is that there is sound in space. A lot of the movies that are about space have so much sound in it. And that's one of the criticisms of those movies is space. You don't have sound in space because of it being a perfect vacuum. So, yeah, I, I from what I remember about reading up on the, the film years ago about its scientific accuracy is that was one of the positives. Like, what, that was one of the things people liked about it. Um I just had, you know, like I thought the movie was really interesting. And I think maybe, you know, the last time I saw it was almost 20 years ago. So if I saw it again now, I'm curious what would be my perspective on it, being that I'm older and more mature, you know? (laughs) So do any of you practice meditation? Yes. Yes. I'm getting into it. Do you find it difficult to be in silence in that? Yes. Uh, not but externally, I, I, but I upped it today internally. So you don't find the external silence to be off-putting at all. No. Why do you ask the question, Zach? I I well, do. It just okay seems to with... me that. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No. Well, I get I get bothered if when I'm trying to meditate, if there's external silences and people are being noisy. You had to study in the extra silent room, didn't you? No, I need noise though. This different. It's very different. As like... one who generates it. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I have to, I cannot, I cannot go work in a super quiet room. I have to be, mm-hmm. I have, always have to have music on or be at a coffee shop, mm-hmm. even though I'm not paying attention. I need to have background noise. Likewise. And I, I sleep with a fan on every day of the, every night throughout the year. God, God bless your wife. She, she, uh, she does too. I'm, I'm one of those people that has a hard time with silence. It makes me uncomfortable. Somebody in, in our in our worship services, we have like a moment of silence to remember our own prayers. Mm-hmm. And then before I lead people in the Lord's Prayer, we're silent. And I asked a woman one time how long I should keep that silence. And she said, um, wait until you feel uncomfortable and then go a little bit longer. 
Ooh, I've heard people that's say that. Awesome. So that's been that's been my go to, and I'll wait until I How long feel is that? people wrestling. <laughs> I mean, in the moment, it feels like it's at least an hour and a half, but I think it's probably <laughs> only about twelve seconds. <laughs> oh. <laughs> wow. We do the same thing here, not quite the Lord's Prayer, at our synagogue. Um, yeah. And I actually timed it because I am not that uncomfortable with silence, but then I noticed other people were, and I was doing 90 seconds. Wow. And that is a really long time, apparently. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> and Adam, I am the one that wanted the olds required yeah. room. Yeah, yeah I love you. the ultra <laughs> quiet. You, oh, I love the ultra quiet oh, room. It's my favorite. I like yeah. to complain <laughs> at the people who turn their pages too loudly in the ultra quiet room. Yes. Right? That that yes. is a sin that should not go oh, unpunished. Um, no, but I have to say, so when you were talking about musicians, I thought you were going to go for uh, for John Cage's four minutes, 33 seconds. Right. Which is the like. No, nope, no, nope, nobody know. knows this. Okay, right. So it's the oh, OK, good. I, I was like <laughs> oh, out on a limb. No, it's the it's the composition he wrote in three movements that is it instructs the people who are playing it to not play their instrument so you sit for four minutes and 33 seconds in total silence and the idea is that you're supposed Mm -hmm. to then hear the ambient noise of the room right Mm -hmm. as part of what contributes to compositions and this sort of thing right but when i was thinking about like space odyssey right like i think part of what's a little discomforting for me with that as opposed to something like john cage is like there's not even like the ambient noise piece it's like kind of like what ian was talking about it's the total vacuum piece that's going going Mm -hmm. for there well you're left with your ambient noise yeah as the watcher so i (laughs) i kendra (laughs) i love i love how this conversation is revolving around uh, silence and sound and how in the examples that we're talking about, like Adam complaining at people turning their pages too loudly. It, it that is a, a, that fair, a complaint. fair complaint. Yeah. Let's just be clear. Oh yeah. A fair complaint. But I think the point right. is that sound <laughs> directs our attention. And mm. in mm. the film, like there are moments of course, where you have the like loud music that, is trying to indicate mm-hmm. a mood, but in the moments where there's no sound, no ambient sound at all, even uh, it's just it seems so perfect. And again, I found this uh, uncomfortable when I watched it the first time too. But I, I'm starting to believe that 2001 is a movie that you love the more that you read other like interpretations about it because there's just so much there. So what I want to say about the sound though is that uh, if you read about the film. Uh, all sorts of journalists, I think, interview with one of the actors. I'm not totally sure, but uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 has been compared to a Rorschach inkblot test. And so, like, if you know what a Rorschach, I think I'm saying that right, Rorschach inkblot test is, it's kind of hard to say. It's a piece of paper with, like, black ink blots, and it's totally subjective. When someone looks at those ink blots, you might see a butterfly or you might see like two sides of a face or, you know, just whatever associations your mind come up with. It's that's like what you interpret the ink blots to be. And I think that Kubrick's 2001 is uh, appropriately compared to that ink block test because the moments of silence sound directs our attention. And so without having sound to direct the audience's attention, there are a lot of wide shots that are not necessarily focused on one character or particular like object in um, a given scene. Like a good example of this is in the Dawn of Man sequence at the beginning of the film. And there are people who have suggested that the wide angles of several of the, the camera shots that don't have a lot of ambient sound and that aren't focused on one particular character or object are moments in the film where the audience is invited to like bring their own interpretations of what's going on and to they have to make decisions about what to focus on 
in the shot. Yeah. And yeah. so it's interesting. And I think there are like other places in the film where this happens too, but it's just one of the, the uh, genius things about the film, I think, is that th there is a narrative that you're supposed to be following and that you can understand like the, the alien species that's like placed the monoliths and is observing humanity going through a process of evolution, but also the visual elements of the film and the way that Kubrick uses or doesn't use sound and the other senses adds this extra dimension of interpretation that allows an audience to walk away knowing something about the objective narrative, if you will, but also having a lot of different subjective feelings and reactions to what it means. Mm. And I just, I think that's so cool. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah, you can, and and I have to say, I know you you sort of asked, Kendra, you asked for our you know, reactions at the beginning. It's so clear that you love this movie. Like you just light up in your voice uh, when you talk about it. So I mean, even at the beginning, very beginning, right. when, before you even asked us your first question, you just yeah, yeah. So yeah. thank so you for sharing you saying, that. Totally oh. <laughs> what I hear you saying no, is that this is if wonderful. I, if I'm going to give it another chance. Screen. <laughs> you did it. You did it. Sorry. Go ahead. So what I hear you saying is, if I see these widescreen shots of several things happening and I'm particularly uninterested in it that it's my fault because I'm not <laughs> exactly. I'm not a good enough uh, movie watcher <laughs> that I I need my hand held by the director to show me one thing at a time with uh, the music to tell me how to feel exactly. and I've been spoiled by film you are to, a spoiled uh, brat not, of a movie watcher that's what I'm saying that I, I need to grow up <laughs> which you know I I can take that <laughs> because you're not wrong. I uh, most of the movies that I see these days are Marvel movies, and oh, you know, they're wrong with so that. good. They're great, but they're they're like you know the Nickelback of movies. There's, just, <gasps> there's not a whole lot of originality <laughs> oh, going on no. there, and it's just oh, oh sorry. No, Do we have no you need to explain to Kendra Nickelback, who Nickelback fans. Is. She was probably. I know. Nickelback. It's an oldies that. Um... <laughs> you compared Marvel to Nickelback. Oh. Uh, it, just in that, it's How it's. Uh, <laughs> what what? Oh. I'm sorry. The creed of movies is that is that too old? Oh. Yes. <laughs> <sighs> I'm sorry. If 2001: A Space Odyssey is Radiohead, then Marvel is Nickelback, and I'm I'm sorry. I mean, I don't. I I feel better now because I have a I have no strong opinions about Marvel movies, but Rachel and Ian do. So. <laughs> 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 you can see their faces. Now who's I'm sorry, we just lost 12 subscribers. Oh. Just in that <laughs> yeah, come back, come back. Just don't go after Star them. Wars or Harry Potter. Too easy. It's low hanging fruit. Whatever. Mm. <laughs> this is like the antithesis oh. of Roger and Ebert. Just saying. <laughs> like I'm just this is more like Stetler okay. and Waldorf. Well, okay. So I do have a question. All right. I'm I'm just going to ask my question. Please. Uh, so. Oh, and you're not allowed to ask it and then leave Adam. Yeah. It was the plan. <laughs> <laughs> there was that word again. <laughs> That's okay. I'm going to censor it. <laughs> For children. I can't wait to hear what sound I get put in my mouth this week. Uh, so, um... <laughs> <laughs> don't censor that. <laughs> can, can you make that the start of the next episode? <laughs> so... this, when, when you have our episode start with Adam or end with Adam, it's so funny. <laughs> okay. So, okay, Adam, your well, question. I, I, I guess, like, because I agree with Zach, right? Like, there, there's a certain sense in which I feel like I feel like Space Odyssey, 2001 Space Odyssey, was this effort to do highbrow film in a general audience public. And so I guess part of what I wonder is, in terms of our own reactions to it, right? Like, how important is narrative for us gotcha. to, like, make meaning 
out of these these films when we watch them because i feel like 2001 a space odyssey right like if you're a if you're a narrative story driven film watcher this is really difficult for you to watch right but there mm -hmm. are all of these elements that like i think kendra is rightly bringing out that the more you look into the film the more you sort of study it the more you have an appreciation of film as a distinctive medium it's doing something really different and then you you come to appreciate it so that feels to me like a really important piece of sort of like what goes on for ourselves, right? In terms of religion and science, how we think about these things, right? Like, you know, are we, are we the narrative people who want that sort of structure in order to, to, to make, uh, make meaning out of these things? Or, or are there elements to which part of what's enjoyable about 2001 A Space Odyssey for, for those who enjoy it is, is this sort of hiddenness to it? almost like a, a question of film as art versus film as entertainment maybe i i don't know i mean i can see I, that or is that or is that too broad no, I, mean, I, I mean i think or, that's a part of it not I, asking the same question okay. but i think there's something like there's something different about watching a film than reading a story right and so much film is just yeah. sort of like yeah story with pictures right whereas like 2001 and space odyssey is yeah. not that and I think that mm. is is also sort of part of like, is there something that it can do that other science fiction films can't because it takes that leap? Yeah. What do you think, Kendra? I mean, I think that's a great question. And it's making me think of a particular example in the film. I'm thinking of the lunar sequence where the astronauts mm. are on the moon and they find the monolith that's on the moon. And when I watched this, Again, having not read the novel, I was just sort of making up what I thought it meant that the astronauts had found the monolith on the moon. And I was making up an interpretation for myself about why the astronauts, when they see the monolith, that, like there's a moment when they hear this like loud screeching, like beeping sound, and they all like visibly get uncomfortable. And it's this like a mission of a signal of some kind. And I remember seeing that thinking like, oh, this is some sort of signal. It's like coming from the monolith. It's making everyone uncomfortable. Maybe this is just like part of the risk and danger of making this new discovery of the monolith on the moon. And there's just like a lot of uncertainty about what they're looking at and what they're experiencing and uncertainty for like the evolution of humankind and like what they will find next if they've gotten this far on the moon, like all these things. But then like after watching the film and then seeing that in the novel, there's like a more explicit explanation, an explicit uh, narrative for why the astronauts hear this signal after they find the monolith on the moon, which if you've read it, you know that it's the uh, alien species that put the monoliths like throughout the solar system for humans to find, they are getting a signal that humans have evolved enough to find the monolith on the moon. So it's communicating mm. back to the alien species that humans, they have reached this marker of evolution. And there are different interpretations that you can impose onto what that narrative means. But that narrative is explicit in the novel in a way that it makes sense of the uncertainty that I had attributed to the film without knowing any of the novel backstory. And so I think that they're like, they do serve different purposes. And I think like to Adam's question or point, um, the, the, the film for me, the first time, uh, and partially because of the class that I was in on faith and film that I've mentioned already, I was bringing this like very mystical, uh, like the paper that I wrote, I basically compared 2001 to Rudolf Otto's Mysterium Tremendum at Fascinans, oh, yeah. uh, and was just talking about like how this film <laughs> was. Uh, you, you may need to unpack uh, Rudolf Otto there uh, for a minute. Okay, <laughs> yeah, Rudolf Otto is a, a yeah, I don't not familiar. And 
um, in religious studies, mysterium tremendum et fascinans. It sounds really fancy, but it's just a way to describe one of the main concepts of this theologian's mystical theology. And it is, I know we're like kind of running out of time, so I don't know how much explanation to really give to this, but what's important I'll, about I'll put I'll put some articles and stuff yeah. in the show notes for those that really want to. But I think just briefly to say that this version of theology, which is very mysterious, there are two parts of it. The mysterium tremendum part is this part of the sacred that is terrifying and overwhelming, and it might elicit fear. And the et fascinans part is the part that provokes like beauty and this wonder, and it lures you in. So Rudolf Otto's understanding of the sacred then, or the numinous is another word that he uses, is to describe something that is both like beautiful and lures you in despite the fact that you are afraid and overwhelmed by it. And so this was something that I, it seemed to make a lot of sense to me when I was watching the film because there wasn't as much of an overlay of explicit narrative about the relationship between the alien species and the humans who were finding all of these monolith markers. And that sometimes was frustrating to me and other times was just like really interesting. And I, I think maybe like felt that the story was more enriched when I did learn about what the novel was bringing to that story, which maybe just goes to uh, like what Adam's saying about the, like the way that we like crave narrative, even if we can like impose it ourselves, but there's something really satisfying about like knowing what it means. That's what everybody asks whenever you watch movies <laughs> that are confusing is what does it mean? Yep. What's the meaning of yes. the monolith? Or songs. Yeah. Or, yeah. So yeah. You know what? I, I deal with this a lot when it comes to teaching Bible, hmm. uh, especially Hebrew Bible, because the New Testament is is pretty cut and dry. Uh, it's pretty easy because you're just kind of reading people's mail or you're reading stories about Jesus. <laughs> and so, but when when I pull out, we're studying like the book of Numbers or something and people are like, why oh, do yeah. I have to care? This is so boring. <laughs> this is so dry. There's just lists of genealogies and yeah. what's the point of this law and that law and whatnot. And then when you unpack it and you look at like the rest of the ancient Near East and you look into the language and in the history and you look into some of the... The, the extra biblical texts ab about it, the rabbinical teachings, the histories of how these things have been worked out in real life. And it just takes on new levels of meaning and of, and of, of, of a life of its own. And people will be like, wait, I didn't realize this was in here. This, 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 <laughs> this was so boring. I, I couldn't get through this. Like so many people, when they're trying to read through the Bible, so many Christians try to do this. And they're like, I'm going to read through the Bible in one year and then make it to about Joshua. Yeah, and maybe into judges <laughs> if they've got a strong stomach. But, uh, judges four, yeah, <laughs> and we, they kind of give up. And but there's there's uh, when when you know it, then it's so much more interesting and richer. But if you're just if you don't know it and you're just looking, if you're looking for like a a New Testament style of of scripture in the Hebrew scriptures, you're not going to find it. And it's a whole different beast. I mean, I think that's what's interesting about yeah. like um, the reference to Otto though, right? Is that like, you don't have to know in order to have this Mysterium Tremendum. In fact, knowing might yeah. lessen it. Um, and I think that's sort of like what's interesting, right? And, and, and I think about this particularly, right? Like as somebody who teaches religion, right? Most of what I spend all of my day doing is trying to get people to do what Zach's describing, like read more closely, then delve into it as a result, and then become sort of interested and immersed in in what's going on. And this, I, I mean, I think I like that reference, Kendra, because it it makes me feel like there is probably something in 2001 A Space Odyssey that if I let go of some of those expectations of what you're supposed to do when you watch a film, mm -hmm. that cultural expectation of I need to understand in order to make meaning, maybe I would see it differently. So what you're saying is you really love 2001 now and you're going to 
No, I, I'm saying that like, and despite it. the fact that I watched it last week to get ready for this and fell asleep, I'm going to try and do it with a cup of coffee this time and then see what happens. <laughs> the last time I watched this movie mm. was when my wife and kids were away for a couple days in Arizona and I had the house to myself. So I decided I was just going to watch all the movies I never watch. And <laughs> I watched that, Interstellar, Contact, Moon, and Alien, and then Prometheus, another alien movie. And <laughs> that was kind of like my sci-fi immersion event. And That's a great immersion event. Of those event. movies, <laughs> this one and maybe Moon are like the two that don't spoon feed you and kind of give you a canvas to make your own meaning. And so maybe I was colored by the fact that I was being spoon-fed meaning by the other ones. So what you're saying is oh. that you love it <laughs> or you're going to love it the next time you watch it. I told you at the beginning of this episode that I love the concept. I love the idea of this movie. I've yet to be able to appreciate it in and of itself. Maybe I can now. I don't know. Yeah. I I have appreciated your sharing of this and have made me think about it. So what I'm saying <laughs> is that I will rewatch it. Same here. With Same here. your lens. <laughs> um, because it does sound like that, and trying to bring this back all around, it does sound like there's actually quite a lot of religious tones as well as some scientific tones in there that I hadn't seen before. Well, and so, and as I've said too, you know, with any kind of, of entertainment type medium, be it, film, TV, books, things that I, you know, with books, for example, that I read a long time ago, as I've had different things happen in my life that when I read them again, I, I see a different aspect to them. And so as I've gone further and further down my own personal spiritual journey, there's a lot of books that I've reread that have had completely different meanings to me that I've picked up on different themes and trends that I never saw before. Yeah. Um, and I, and you know, when you become a parent, you notice different things in films than you used to in different in different type of media, right? So I think it would be interesting to yep. give it another chance because, you know, I to be honest, before we really got into this, I was thinking, yeah, I don't really need to spend almost three hours of my life doing that again. But, Kendra, I'm not ready to say I love it, but you have definitely done a good job of reminding me that it has potential. More than enough potential. So thank you, my friend. Yes. See, there you go. I'll do I it I think again. it's something that I need to watch with someone who can then afterwards discuss it with me. Yeah. That's that was really... what was so enjoyable to that's... me about seeing Donnie Darko. Field trip Darko. to Kendra's house? I saw Donnie yeah. Darko. Anybody see that movie, Donnie Darko? No. Weird movie. Weird. I, I watched it in Chicago and it. then on the train ride home, we talked about it and it was more fun to talk about it on the way home than it was to watch that super confusing movie <laughs> with Jake Gyllenhaal and I didn't understand rabbit. it at all well uh, I would love to talk to you about it sometime I maybe I can help you understand time travel yeah yeah it I just you need like a movie club just like a club. absolutely that's a good idea and that's what we are trying to provide with this new mini series we are your book club for some of these movies movie club I just before we ended the call I wanted to share just a couple of small visual things in the film that I recently learned new interpretations of when I was going back to like Ooh, look at yeah. uh, uh, video interpretations of 2001. So the mm -hmm. first is uh, both of these happen in the, the Stargate segment. So the end of the film and there is a, a section where Dave Bowman is sitting at a table like eating by himself. And, you know, it's in that weird room with the glowing floor and it's, he's like all alone and he drops a glass and breaks a glass. The glass like shatters on the floor. And that's something that I like didn't think that much about uh, the first time I saw it. But 
I was looking at people comparing that to the earlier scene, the Dawn of Man sequence at the beginning of the film, where the apes like break a series of bones on the ground when they see the first monolith and then they like are inspired to create a weapon or like use a weapon to take back their resources. And then they're banging bones on the ground and the bones are shattering. And then at the end of the film, Mm -hmm. you have this glass that breaks and shatters on the floor. And so there are people who have tried to make connections uh, about the like evolutionary passages of uh, human history in the film and how the first like bone breaking is this passage into like learning how to make tools and becoming more reliant upon technology because m- most of the movie is like in outer space with this advanced technological stuff that we use to fly around space and do all the things and at the end of the film this glass breaks and it's after hell has been killed and it's after Dave Bowman has gone through the Stargate and is no longer like using this like advanced technology for himself. He's just sitting in this room eating, breaks the glass. And so some have described it as like the breaking of the body or like the breaking of these bonds of the like most of the film where uh, humans are like in this symbiotic relationship basically with technology and their spirit is being uh, like reborn as the star child. And they're like going on to this advanced consciousness and it's just, it's like real trippy and Whoa. is not something that I would have <laughs> thought about the first time I saw it. And I don't know like how much I think it's super compelling, but I really love that people have found a way to like put these things together. And so I just, I thought that was one thing. And then the other thing, which is shorter, is just the scene where Dave Bowman, before he dies, he's laying in bed and he's reaching out with his hand to touch the last monolith that we see in the film. And people have compared that to the Sistine Chapel painting where humans are like reaching up uh, and trying to like touch the hand of God. But in this case, it's Dave Bowman in the monolith, which I just thought is like, oh, that's really... Wouldn't have really thought of that either, but <laughs> also a fun, deep. weird thing to yeah. compare. So those are... This is what I love about studying uh, like the Second Temple apocalyptic literature, which I'll talk about next week. Like People who study like, the book of Revelation in, in the New Testament will be like, oh, well, you've got this angel with, with this bowl pouring out this wrath, which if you then read in light of... What Jesus says in Matthew, and then in light of what is in Daniel, and then in this text over here, and then this corresponds to Greece, and this one to Xerxes, but this one over here, if you read it, this, this is it. And then you find all these crazy connections to things that mean whole layers of upon layers upon layers upon layers that are callbacks to earlier bits and callbacks to cultural bits. And we all get to sit around and figure out what it means to our life yeah. today. I love it. Yeah. I love that a lot. So fun. Now, I would not have gotten that re- watching it by myself. Nope. In in my house being very confused. <laughs> so I'm glad to have heard this from somebody who knows. Mm-hmm. I will say the one the one thing I'm really I'm really thankful for about this movie was the fact that when Stanley Kubrick told all of the journalists that were covering the movie to refer to it as 2001, A Space Odyssey. Because he wanted to influence the way that the world said two thousand and one. Well, you think every other every other uh, century before has been eighteen oh one, nineteen oh one, seventeen oh one. We were on track to say twenty oh one, and he didn't like that. He thought it sounded weird, and he wanted people to say two thousand and one. And so he told everyone to call the movie 2001 so that by the time we got to the 2000s, we would call it that. And we wouldn't call it 2001 or 2001. That's amazing. That's and funny. so now, yeah. So all of those oh. early 2000s, we call that because of Stanley Kubrick. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, thank you, Stanley Kubrick. And thank He's you, Zach, nice for giving us that little factoid. I know. It, it, I wouldn't the be doing my job if know. there wasn't at least one fun fact. Absolutely. You would not be. <laughs> Also, there is no connection between David Bowman and David Bowie, by the way. 
<laughs> that just similar names. Um, yeah, exactly. It's um, David Bowie's real name. Ziggy Stardust. David Bowie's real name is David Jones. And he changed his name, his performing name when he was 18 because he didn't want people to confuse him with Davy Jones from the Monkees. So he chose David Bowie after the guy who invented the Bowie knife. And so David Bowman <laughs> was not connected to that, even though David Bowie has a song called uh, um, A Space Oddity and based Major Tom on David Bowman. That's funny. There's a lot of connections between the two. But I love that song. Do, but yeah. it's totally just incidental that they're similar. That's really funny. Another factoid. Yeah. Thank you. It's like how the, Potom the Potomac River in, near D.C., the Greek word for river is um, Potomas. So you'd think it was the river river. River, river. The Potomac river. The Potomac River is named after a Native American word for something completely different. So it's just total chance that the the Greek word sounds exactly <laughs> like river named for a river. But it's just yeah, just two things that happened at the same time that are very similar that are not connected at all. It's interesting. So no conspiracy. <laughs> maybe. For now. For now. All right. Thank you, On Kendra. That, oh, yes. Thank you, Kendra. I will give the movie another chance. I'm going to have to watch it now. Yeah, <laughs> I can't wait to go home and tell Anne. Like, kind of guess what we're gonna watch now? Kendra's orders. <laughs> this has been episode thirty-two of the Down the Wormhole podcast. Thanks for being on this journey with us. You can support the podcast by going to Patreon.com/slash Down the Wormhole podcast. You can find links to articles and further reading in the show notes or at our website at downthewormhole.com. I hope you'll join us next week as Adam takes us on a dark and twisted tour of the brilliant mind of Guillermo del Toro and the fantasy realism of Pan's Labyrinth. We'll talk about magic, religion, science, medicine, the loss of wonder, and the struggle to re-mystify the world. Also... Since the film is in Spanish, if you watch it with English subtitles, you can totally count that as a short story that you read during quarantine. Win-win! But until then, remember... You really love 2001 now, and you're gonna watch it again and love it. <laughs>